You are listening to the Post Growth Australia podcast, the one podcast where size don't matter and where better is better than bigger. Hello, all and sundry, and welcome to another edition of Post Growth Australia podcast. Michael Bayless is my name. Stopping endless growth on a finite planet is my game. Did you know that it is 50 years almost to the date when Limits to Growth was first published in 1972? This best-selling book, which detailed the unravelling of industrial civilization across a couple of generations, kick-started the post-growth movement, but was ignored or ridiculed by the then powers that be. These days, we are obviously witnessing the consequences of ignoring the warnings as the unravelling happens daily before our very eyes. Now, it has occurred to me that PGAP has not given enough recent love to our main supporters, Sustainable Population Australia, or SPA for short. It is often assumed that SPA is exclusively focused on population as a single issue and has the blinkers onto all the other human impact contributions. However, this is definitely not the case. For example, the fact that SPA supports PGAP is hopefully indicative of a group willing to broaden the envelope to investigate all facets and intricacies of the post-growth movement, including guests who would definitely not see eye to eye with SPA on the specific question of population, but would be in furious agreement on just about everything else. So SPA has just released a discussion paper entitled Population and Climate Change that has actually been picked up widely by the mainstream media for a change. Within its pages, it is stated that to fight climate change, we must tackle both consumption and population. These are not independent contributors to greenhouse gas emissions. They multiply each other. Also, it is futile to blame past greenhouse gas emissions on either population or consumption patterns when they are the product of both. More important is how population policies can, combined with other measures, help emissions reduction and climate adaptation. Really, this has always been SPA's modus operandi, that yes, the focus of their attention may have bias towards one of the most persistent and misunderstood issues ever, but also that everything is interconnected. Such as it is that Sustainable Population Australia will be the primary sponsors for this year's 2022 FENA conference titled Making Australian Agriculture Sustainable. Given that food security is one of the existential issues that we face toward a future of climate change, water and resource scarcity, now is the time to be rethinking agriculture. There have been a number of FENA conferences over the years, each dealing with crucial environmental themes. They are named after Frank Fenner, an Australian scientist with a distinguished career in the field of virology who oversaw the eradication of smallpox. He was a keen supporter of Australia having an ecologically and socially sustainable population. One of the keynote speakers for the conference will be Charles Massey, passionate spokesman for the regenerative farming movement and author of Call of the Reed Warbler, A New Agriculture, A New Earth. 
Charles Massey has become quite the household name, even having an episode of Australian Story dedicated to him and a 40-year transformation of his farm in the Monaro region of New South Wales. While PGAP has dedicated several episodes to food security, particularly through the lens of permaculture, we haven't yet dedicated airtime specifically to regenerative agriculture per se. This all changes from this point onward with my discussion with esteemed guest Charlie Massey himself. Charlie very kindly gave up his time between demanding schedules to speak with PGAP on regenerative agriculture and the upcoming Fenner conference. He did joke with me that my questions dug a lot deeper and were more challenging than what is typical from most mainstream media. Thankfully, he was more than capable of being up for the challenge. So if you're game for a pithy and chewy discussion, then you're going to love PGAP's interview with Charles Massey. Welcome back to PGAP. I'm delighted to be sitting here with Charlie Massey. Um, Charlie, you are a regenerative farmer and an author of the fantastic book Call of the Reed Warbler. You are a household name, at least to anyone who's watched Australian Story or read the book, um, and you will be one of the keynote speakers at the upcoming Fenner Conference. So firstly, tell us a little bit more about yourself, including your key passions and what drives you. Yes, thanks, Michael. Good to be with you. I'm uh, pushing 70, so I'm an aged farmer, which is about average, I think. I live on our farm uh, in the Snowy Mountains area where we farm sheep and sometimes cattle. Uh, and I've always been interested in writing. And uh, I guess when I went back to university in my uh, early 60s to do a PhD after 40 years absence, I was passionate about the need for a new type of farming to preserve our landscape. And, and that's, that was the subject of my PhD, wondering why farmers change from one to the other. And that, of course, led to my book. Uh, your question is, what drives me? Well, my passions are obviously uh, family and regenerating the land. But what drives me is the fact that our planet and our species are now facing the direst situation, certainly as far as humans are concerned, in their entire history. And uh, we've caused that problem. We can discuss this later, I know, pushing Earth into the Anthropocene. But uh, what drives me is that regenerative agriculture has some of the best solutions to addressing that massive problem. Yes, we've heard of uh, several agricultural solutions on this podcast, which I also want to uh, touch on later. But speaking of agriculture, um, after several false starts to, wouldn't you believe it, COVID, <laughs> the Fenner Conference on the subject, Making Agriculture Sustainable, will be held in March in Canberra, um, either in person or online, hopefully both. You are one of many fantastic speakers at the event. So why do you believe the conference on this very topic is crucial in this day and age? And what are you looking forward to from the conference? The, the Fenner Conference is, no, is named after Sir Frank Fenner, a wonderful scientist based at ANU, and they've been reasonably regular events and always on important 
topics relevant to contemporary Australia. And, and this one is probably one of the most important because it does focus through regenerative agriculture as a theme on that huge issue now confronting us, that we humans have moved our planet Earth into a whole new dangerous regime out of what that safe period called the Holocene into the new human cause, dangerously destable Anthropocene, anthropo after humans. And uh, it's forms of industrial agriculture and, and past clearing of forests and raping of land and creating deserts that has pushed us into this dangerous new phase of Earth where such agriculture has been instrumental in, in destabilizing six of the nine planetary systems that sustain this extraordinary blue-green planet and, and the life on it in a, in a phase that the scientists call the Great Acceleration, when all those post-Second World War events of industrial agriculture, growth economy, caused so much damage. And um, so there's, there's really no more crucial issue to, to talk about, uh, and that's why I'm sure this Fenna conference is now focusing on this uh, existential threat. And links to the Fenner conference in the description of this episode. Now, I'm a little bit shamed to say that this is the first episode on Post Growth Australia podcast PGAP interviewing a regenerative farming expert. We've explored food production several times before. However, it's been mostly through the lens of permaculture, I guess they're my people. So de definitions are always tenuous. But do you draw any similarities and distinctions between permaculture and regenerative farming? In my mind, I see one difference being the scale of the farming operation and the variety of foodstuffs planted. But this just might be my, my uh, grasping at straws here. No, no, uh, good question. Uh, actually, they are indivisible. Permaculture is a form of regenerative agriculture uh, with some very sophisticated thinking behind it due to David Holmgren and others who founded it. Regenerative farming, so therefore, can apply to small city backyard blocks, uh, smaller farms as permaculture tends to focus on, but I've seen permaculture on broad acre farms. But both of them really are variants of a farming and its interaction with the social, uh, the local region and, and home production of healthy food and fibre and healthy communities, both essentially doing the same thing. And... Uh, and I think uh, permaculture has a huge role to play because, uh, because it's more tended to focus on the peri-urban and, and the smaller farms. Uh, that's a bulk of the, a lot of the population that are now moving into a healthy way of living and self-sufficiency and turning around some of the negatives we're discussing in the earth system. So uh, uh, they're just two great variants of, uh, of really of the same thing. Oh, excellent um, comparison. In a recent episode of PGAP on the Christmas edition, I said we need to rediscover the lost art of leaving the natural world alone. Although I guess uh, this must come with a qualifier. For example, in light of decades of poor management practices, it is sometimes tempting to suggest that farming should be abandoned and let nature take its course. And while this may work in some areas, it's my understanding that landscapes that have been manipulated for agriculture over many decades do not necessarily return to state they were in before white settlement just by walking away from them. For, for one example, you have planted 60,000 mixed native species of trees on your land in the past 30 years. Um, I think that's a number, let me know if I'm off the mark here. Um, what do you think would have happened if you had just walked away from the land completely? 
Well, I'll answer that and come back to the earlier premises. We, we took over a farm that had been degraded and simplified since the 1830s. And part of that was our grassy woodlands, all the woodlands had been cleared. So all the diverse vegetation that supported parasitic insects and wasps and birds and little critters and reptiles, they had no diverse functional component left. So we can't obviously replace thousands of acres of grassy woodland that have been cleared, but we can at least, uh, and, and I learned when I was at ANU from some of the best landscape ecologists, we can at least get some function going, like such as broad corridors, patches, mosaics, planting our local native species and enough of them across the spectrum from the smaller shrubs to large trees to bring back the parasitic insects, the birds, the spiders, the wasps, the reptiles. So that's what that is. But behind your question is um, if landscapes have been destroyed, which has happened with agriculture up, up until nearly the present, can they necessarily, you, you asked, return to the state that they were in before white settlers arrived here if we walk away from them? Well, in, in many cases, the answer is no. If you just leave them, they continue to degrade because mm. in sort of what's called resilience theory, the, the, that state of function of that landscape has been taken down to a, a lower level. And without injecting a lot of energy and replanting and doing what regenerative farming does, which is grazing regeneratively and cropping regeneratively, in other words, in sympathy with nature, you are not going to be able to return that landscape back to a state of health. So the, the whole ecological theory of this is, is built around a, a thinking called resilience thinking. But I think what's exciting about regenerative agriculture, if, if we mimic natural functions, which is what's happening, you can start to return those landscapes back to health. And, and classic case here is at home, on our um, basalt grasslands, uh, we're now starting to see that the return of what was the original native grass, the beautiful kangaroo grass, uh, which in the 1820s before whites came, at this time of year you would have seen an orange landscape and that's now starting to appear in a lot of that country. So uh, it's a really good question, but no, it, it won't um, regenerate without constructive human uh, inputs. So that's the easy option uh, off the cards as usual. And indeed on the documentaries that I've seen of your property, it stands out in what's often a very um, dry part of the world or what looks like a very degraded part of the world. Now this is a post-growth podcast that discusses the need for systemic change towards some form of post-growth society. So it's good to ask what farming might look like in a post-growth society. How would farming under a post-growth model look to you? You're full of all the easy questions <laughs> this afternoon. It, it's a good question. Um, to me, uh, there's such urgency. We've just discussed that uh, we humans, since the Second World War particularly, have, have pushed Earth into a dangerous situation called the Anthropocene. If you talk to a lot of the leading climate and planetary scientists, they think we've only got one generation, 25 years, to do something about that. If we continue with the current growth society philosophy of uh, extraction, growth for the sake of endless growth, uh, we'll destroy ourselves <coughs> within that generation and the planet will have uncontrollable runaway events, most likely. So the importance of preserving habitat, increasing biodiversity, protecting soil is crucial to that post-growth model. Uh, which is overlooked in the current model. So if you look at that Anthropocene model that the planetary scientists have got, 
You've got that blue-green sphere called Earth. There's only one of them that we know of in the entire universe. And life itself that evolved about 3.8 billion years ago actually created those conditions for life. So it's quite unique. And one species, us, is now destabilising it. And, and if you look at what agriculture over thousands of years has, has done, it's, it's a key player in destabilising the climate, in biodiversity loss, changes in land use, huge extraction of fresh water use, and, and the integrated phosphorus and nitrogen cycles, and, and also the sixth planetary system of ocean acidification. Because once you put up too much carbon dioxide, the ocean absorbs that, it turns more acidic, and that has huge negative impacts. So how does farming look in a post-growth model? Well, it's got to be regenerative agriculture, which we now know can regenerate those six destabilised systems out of the nine that agriculture has destabilised. So it's, a, it's an exciting story, as I see it. And uh, many critics might argue that degrowing our industrialised systems will lead to food shortages. Well, well not so. Um, Regenerative agriculture is capable of having equivalent or better yields. And, and the industrial West thinks that uh, we're the main providers of food in the world. Well, United Nations, FAO, a few years ago published the fact that 75% uh, of the world's food comes off five-acre farms and less. And most of that is, is, is done in a healthy farming fashion. So if we can tidy up the broad acres of regenerative agriculture, I think that we can play a huge role in, in turning around this planetary crisis. And certainly your work debunks the myth, I guess, often purposed by degrowth critics who do say that deindustrializing our agriculture systems will lead to food shortages. So great work that you do in, in debunking that. Do you think farmers could be provided a form of UBI in order to make adjustments to land management practices so that short-term returns and risks don't trump long-term benefits? Or do you have any other good ideas in terms of, you know, direct intervention on our current agricultural system? Look, personally, I, I don't think what could by some be called a handout is going to trigger uh, through shocks and urgency the need for change in the way we farm and regenerate earth. We now know through what's happening with regenerative agriculture we do know how to turn around land management systems and uh, I think if you get paid a comfortable UBI that urgency to act differently and to be more sensitive to the earth you're farming is, is just not going to come. It's uh, it's more like a glorified doll. I mean, I'm not a, a great expert in understanding the universal basic income, but um, that would be my interpretation as a farmer. Uh, it's hard enough changing the psychology of farming uh, as it is. And, and there are other incentives that are more really good carrots, such as if you farm well, uh, you can get biodiversity credits for regenerating your land. Carbon credits are really starting to evolve and mm. retrospective tools we've been looking at where through outstanding satellite technology that we have, they, you can be rewarded with ongoing credits if you continue doing the right thing for what you've done in the past because satellites can measure the difference between you and your neighbours and what you've actually planted and done. So 
I think uh, there are other tools that are, are probably better carrots, to be frank. Yeah. One of the things that did strike me in an Australian story and some of the other documentaries was how regentrofarming and improved mental health are closely interlinked. I reckon few people, myself included, understand the mental health issues that many farmers face. Do you think that more emphasis needs to be placed on the symbiosis that is regenerative land management and regenerative mental health? Do you think that farmers uh, would be valued and financially compensated for playing a fundamental role in reversing the climate and ecological crisis to help with this process? The assumption there is that we might have some visionary governments behind the operation, but it's a good question. I mean, we know that uh, male farmers have the highest, highest suicide rates in our society. And um, it's some really interesting work. Uh, and actually, it's a woman I did my PhD with at the Fenner School at ANU, uh, who's now a professor at the University of Canberra, Dr Jackie Skirmer. And for a few years now, she's been doing big surveys of farmers, and included in that is mental health questions. And what's really standing out since the very first year she did it, and, and it's consistent, is that regenerative farmers have a much higher score of mental health. My experience was when I was an industrial farmer and you get trapped by a big drought, you just seem to be fighting an endless abyss of debt and cloudless skies and, and uh, depression can come very easily. Regenerative farming, first of all, you're doing something that's uh, not just money-making focus, but to make a, a better, more secure income, you're actually regenerating nature. But you have really flexible tools to adjust your stocking rates to droughts so that you don't build your landscape and you don't turn it into a dust bowl, which is what I saw in my early career, which is incredibly mentally challenging. Every day you walk out the back door in a four or five year drought and you just see dust and debt and uh, unhealthy sheep. The converse is through regenerative agriculture, it's not just the techniques you're putting on the land, but there's some really sophisticated management skills that go with it and, and good education sources behind it. So I, I think uh, in time, uh, through credits, which we discussed in the last question, whether they're biodiversity or carbon credits, as I've alluded to, I, I think uh, regenerative farming can play a key role in turning around our planetary crisis. And it'd be wonderful if there's an encouragement for that through sort of biodiversity credits and those other instruments. So uh, it's a really big question, which you're full of these difficult questions, but it's a terrific question. And uh, uh, and I think you can see that I, I really do firmly believe that proper form of farming can provide huge solutions to our planetary crisis. And I do apologise for the pithiness of the questions on this podcast. That's what we pride ourselves on. Now, for true healing and reconciliation, it's important to sign treaties with First Nations peoples that will much better recognise their right to connect and engage your country. Do you think that there is the potential for regenerative farmers and First Nations people to work together to heal the land, whilst also providing long-term security? Could regenerative farming help the reconciliation process? And is there still a place for capital and sheep looking into the future when so much of uh, colonialism fundamentally tied to European-style grazing was historically such a disaster to uh, many First Nations people? Yeah, again, really good questions. Um, the answer is yes. I think there's a terrific opportunity for working with our First Nations people, and, and we're doing that here. Uh, we run cool burning workshops with an Indigenous elder who I'm learning from. 
our family once put a proposition to him and, and some of his people um, to go and purchase property and, and work uh, work in a collaborative sense where they could grow bush tucker and, and we could manage the rest of it. But that, that fell through. So our family is very much on side with that, as are many others. Only a few hours ago, I got off the phone with a really visionary group called Black Duck Foods who work with Bruce Pascoe and, and uh, in regenerating um, indigenous bush tucker uh, and particularly the grains, the native grains across broad landscapes that sustained uh, a lot of those nations previously. So this is already starting to happen and there's some really good movements in place. And, and quite frankly, uh, it needs to. I, I mean, as I said to an Indigenous person this morning, uh, we European farmers might have legal title, but in, in historical context, we're still farming on stolen land. So the best way to... Uh, get around that is and, and gain some reconciliation is, is to work together. Regenerative farming allows that. And then your last part of your question was, is there still a place for cattle and sheep, given that they were sort of a one of the colonial tools that pushed people off the land? Look, for the Australia's broader landscapes, sheep and cattle are an essential tool in regeneration. We're finding that. If you graze them the right way, it's the only tool, especially in marginal country, that, that will allow natural functions to restore themselves. So if we dispense with them, the land will discontinue degrading. But at, say on a farm like ours, where we've already offered some country for First Nations people down the coast to come and plant uh, the famous Murnong, the yam daisy, I think um, they don't necessarily, some of them don't necessarily want to own a farm and get into industrial farming, but if they've got access to traditional land, you know, that's them getting back on country and uh, that's another form of partnership that uh, we, we can share and, and work together with. And uh, we're looking at doing that, providing some land. And, and we've got um, scores and scores of acres and tree breaks where you could plant yam daisies and all the rest of it to no cost. And, and, and we're not alone in this. It's, it's, really, it's a really exciting space that's opening up where farmers are starting to work with Indigenous nations. So does that mean that um, cattle and sheep can be raised alongside Murnong daisies in the same property? Absolutely, but provided you fence off, uh, as in tree breaks and other special uh, areas devoted to it, uh, you fence off things like the Murnong and the, the yam daisy because it was, it was overgrazing by sheep that destroyed them. That's easily managed and uh, in, a, in a farm like ours and grassy woodlands that we've fenced off for biodiversity, this huge capacity. It's not just the, the yam daisy, there's things like vanilla lilies, which I know from local First Nations people were also a really rich form of, of, of food with uh, good forb roots underneath. So uh, I, I think we're right on the threshold. When you talk to people like uh, Pasco and, and, and the others associated with black duck foods, there's a really great potential for collaboration and sharing. And one of the things we also discuss, I mean, you look at New South Wales, it has huge acreage, tens of thousands of acres in the old travelling stock reserves. And instead of selling them off, uh, and, and a lot of them because they were grazed quite ecologically in the past in, in pulse grazing, uh, they've got a lot of very valuable native um, flora and fauna. Uh, how about if that's what once government land was passed over to Indigenous people to manage and, and grow food and uh, harvest uh, grass seed off, etc., etc. So there's plenty of opportunity to think outside the square, I think. Yeah, definitely. And I've just learnt a lot from this conversation alone. I had no idea that um, Burnon could actually 
coincide, you know, with the right caveats with grazing animals. I always thought they were mutually exclusive. So <laughs> thank you so much for that. Now, while we need to be working towards a shift in our relationship with land as part of systemic change, uh, as you said, that requires a fundamental shifts to our political leadership, there's also the matter of what we can do right now under the current system. Do you find there's still a growing interest among farmers to adapt to regenerative farming practices, especially after the wonderful Australian Story episode that focused on your personal journey in that direction? Yes, the answer is, um, I mean, there's some really outstanding education organisations in this space, not just in grazing, there's two big ones there, and, and uh, they've put through tens of thousands of farmers. There's only about 100,000 farmers in Australia, and I would estimate there's at least 15,000 or more have already done up to four or five day expensive courses. There's wonderful education groups in agroforestry, which is growing trees on farms, not monocultures for pine trees or anything. Uh, a lot of the new cropping variants, there's lots of education, huge acreage going into that. So my guess is if you look at the innovation adoption curve, we've moved... Uh, out of the, we've moved into the uh, early majority, out of just the early adopters. So maybe the 15, 20% and it's accelerating. So it's a pretty exciting space. But uh, the, the other component, how we shift attitudes, it, it's not just on farms. I mean, I've seen some alarming stat statistics lately from um, some organisations in the city that look at what's happening with children's attitudes to nature. We'll put it this way, the, the percentage of time that children used to spend playing outside has now shrunk by about 80-90% because uh, children in the city now, and, and some in the country too of course, uh, are sitting in front of screens. So they're not learning about nature. And I, I remember uh, learning from a, an outstanding uh, evolutionary biologist when I was lecturing um, that all our systems need to be challenged if we're going to develop. So, you know, Little babies do need to crawl around in the dirt and ingest germs to stimulate their guts. They need to climb trees and run and jump to develop strength in their long bones. They need to be outside looking at distance to develop long sight. Our systems don't develop without challenge. And if we're going to sit in front of screens and, uh, and, and you know, the, the statistics um, from Planet Ark and people like that of the drastic cut in, in outdoor play and the number of children now that, can, that have climbed a tree or a rock or that have never climbed a tree or rock more is, is alarming. So it's not just uh, we farmers, it's, it's, it's the next generation that have to be brought up to love and nurture nature, or, or we will continue to regard the earth as just this inanimate, exploitable um, substrate. So big issues. And certainly most of the urban planning in our suburbs and inner cities that just mows down often former market gardens in order to create cookie cutter suburbs is testament to that with no thought of nature or the natural world or previous farming uh, wisdom that used to occur in, in those new suburbs. I think, you know, the, uh, the information on, um, say, Western Sydney's developments where, you know, 90% of the housing blocks are covered by concrete, no green, uh, no no great parklands, it, it's pretty frightening um, as far as both uh, temperature-wise uh, and the radiation of heat back out to earth, but human health, coming back to that mental health thing. So yeah, these are big issues you're raising. And speaking of thoughtless, endless growth on a <laughs> finite 
continent. Uh, last pithy question for you, and then I promise it's all over. Um, PGAP is supported with the kind generosity of Sustainable Population Australia, who are also supporters of the Fenner Conference. Uh, now, SPA maintains that population is one misunderstood factor out of the many factors that have a detrimental effect on the planet. It's, you know, when you consider all the other species we're kicking off the planet for the sake of jobs and growth, indeed our future survival, if there's only us left around to kick off. Uh, consumption technology and wealth inequality are, of course, other factors in the IPAT equation. Beyond farming, what are your broader perspectives in regards to steady state, post-growth and degrowth? Well, when we're talking about growth, we're talking about economic growth um, and therefore exportation of non-renewable resources, etc. And that's what's driven us into the Anthropocene. It's, it's, it's this, this quest for uh, short-term profits and a very narrow uh, definition of what brings happiness, which is uh, wealth. If we're going to reach a steady state, it has to be a recycling, regenerating and in fact degrowing society. And uh, that all sounds good in, uh, in theory, but uh, if you look around the world at the moment, um, two great <laughs> communist countries ready to wage war, the leading Western capitalist society is still on this uh, endless growth quest. It would be very easy to become disillusioned. And I think that's why I come back both to what's happening at this conference and, and the field that I'm in, which is what makes me passionate, that we need to regenerate the earth systems. But uh, if we continue on this current course of endless economic growth, destruction of resources, clearing of the Amazon and the Indonesian forests and so on and so on and so on. Yes, we're not going to be around for another generation after this next one. So the urgency is now and, and uh, I think the lessons in... Uh, in regeneration and what's coming out of this conference are, are really absolutely pertinent, not just for farmers, but for uh, everyone in society. So we've come to the end of our discussion, Charlie. So thank you so much. But all of this and more at the Fenner Conference. So tell us again, maybe in 30 seconds or less, why people should come along to making agriculture sustainable in Canberra from the 17th to 18th of March and what other speakers you're looking forward to hearing and how people can register? Well, look, if I, if I look at uh, the lineup or the subjects, it's not just regenerative agriculture, it's soil and water, there's indigenous farming, enabling meaningful change, dealing with climate change. We've got some of Australia's best speakers and, and scientists on that. And, uh, and touching on other issues, including, you know, things like lock the gates and, and uh, restoring the soil and, and a big focus on transforming global food systems. So, and, you know, the final session is, can we feed all the people and not destroy the earth? So to cover all that, you've got uh, introducers like John Hewson, soil scientist Walter Yana, Dr. Patrice Newell, who's written beautifully on this, Matthew Evans, a wonderful food critic, Gabby Chan is just writing challengingly about books. Sociologists like Professor Stuart Hill, some of our best climate scientists, like I said, Mark Hardner and Dunlop, Borovitz and um, Will Steffen, etc., etc., who, who wraps up this session. So uh, it's an extraordinary lineup across the spectrum. So uh, I think it'll be one of the it's shaping to be one of the best and most pertinent 
Vienna conferences for a long while. You know, if it was any other time in our history, I'd be there with bells on, but I'm not sure if WA would let me back through the borders at this <laughs> point in time. So I'll be there virtually, looking very forward to it. Um, it's open for anyone to be there in person or virtually online. That's uh, one of the benefits of modern technologies and <laughs> being behind a screen. Um, so, Charlie, thank you so much. It was an absolute delight. No, thanks very much, Michael. And your questions uh, were challengingly difficult, which means that you've done your homework, so thank you. You're listening to Post Growth Australia podcast. We just heard from the ever-fantastic Charlie Massey. I trust I'm speaking for all of us in learning so much more about regenerative farming from that discussion. You want to know what else is fantastic? <laughs> the talent behind the Fenner Committee making this conference great behind the scenes. Rod Taylor, for example, is not only on the Fenner Committee, he also contributes a regular science column, Fuzzy Logic, in addition to being an accomplished and published author. Since we're talking about agriculture, a strong theme that emerges in his recent book is about how caring for the land is crucial to us all and not just to farmers. Ten Journeys on a Fragile Planet tells the story of people on the land such as fifth-generation sheep farmer Charlie Prell and how he fought drought and rabbits to keep his farm viable. Today, Charlie is a founder of Farmers for Climate Action and will be appearing at the Fenner Conference. Ten Journeys on a Fragile Planet is available online and can be purchased as well at the venue. If you are able to make it to Fenner's Making Australian Agriculture Sustainable Conference this March, I'm sure it will be very worth your travel to our national capital. The conference can also be attended online. I will provide a link in the episode description. Also in the episode description will be a link to the Climate Change and Population Discussion Paper from Sustainable Population Australia. For those of us who may be concerned about returning to former levels of growth and who may wish to voice our opinions in anticipation of the federal election, there will also be a link in the description to a page on the SPA website around how you can make a difference. Now, a little bit of a personal disclaimer here. <laughs> As someone who is passionate about animal welfare and who has chosen a vegan path, it is important for me to see how the philosophy that I live by can interconnect with proven land management practices that rely in part upon regenerative grazing. Different philosophies can work side by side as long as we look towards the common ground that connects us all. In this case, the common ground needs to be about transitioning away from industrialised agriculture whether it be intensive monoculture cropping or unsustainable intensive grazing. What is crucial is that we do not get divided over ideological differences. As someone who's very vocal in two of the more controversial environmental issues, that of population and that of plant-based agriculture, 
I've learned how crucial it is that we are open to accommodating different ideologies as we work toward a comprehensive movement for systemic and regenerative change. Loved this episode, hated it, fiercely undecided. Make your thoughts loud and clear by contacting PGAP on our contact page. Rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. Share this episode widely among your friends, family, and your social media networks. When it comes to the post-growth ideas that will truly make a difference in this troubled world, the mainstream media won't be peddling the truths that need to be said, so word of mouth is worth its weight in gold. I will finish this episode with a track, A Blame It On The Sun, a dystopian song from the artist Counting Backwards about overworked landscapes succumbing to climate change and the social upheaval it will cause. This podcast, thankfully, shows a clear pathway away from that dystopia. Join PGAP next time for more pithy conversations with more inspiring guests. Until then, folks, until then. A landscape parched and forlorn Where desperate farmers scratch and claw For all that they have worked for Within the window, within the window of the dawn But he knows that he can play it on the sun Because he is the damage that's above And he knows that when the rains no longer come There'll be enough grain left for some, left for some, left for some. Jenny Craig Take your faith in gluten-free cake Take it all Take it all Take it all Take it all and throw it all away When the men Come with God
天地。